Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Now, you may have noticed that we have returned to the buckler clash uh, as the intro sounds to the podcast, so you know you're in the right place. I did try some historical harp music last week, and I asked for opinions, and literally every single person said, give us the bucklers, or words to that effect. However, I was also made aware of the fact that the bucklers were a bit loud, and while I do normalise the uh, volumes for everything so that uh, the it should be fairly consistent. I think because the buckler clash is quite piercing, it comes across as louder than it really is. So I have tried to tone it down. If you have any further comments or remarks about the intro sound to the podcast, I'll be delighted to hear them. So you can always contact me at guy at guywindsor.com and let me know what you think. So on with the show. I'm here today with Ruth Cooper-Brown and Rachel Bowne-Williams, who in 2005 established the RC Annie Fight and Industry Directors Company. Uh, they do stage combat and sword fight stuff. The reason I decided to get them on the show is because a friend of mine was working on a production they were working on recently. I think it was for the RSC. I was like, Guy, you really ought to get these two on your podcast. So here we are. Um, I should also say that they are both... Uh, instructors and examiners for the British Academy of Dramatic Combat, and which Ruth has chaired for about six years. So without further ado, Ruth and Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Really great to be here. It's actually the first time I've had two people on at once. (laughs) This will stretch my interviewing skills. All right. Uh, First question is just to orient everyone. um, Whereabouts are you? At this precise moment in time, um, I'm in my living room in southeast London. Whereabouts are you, Rachel? I am in uh, the space at the bottom of my garden, also in southeast London. We live about a mile away from each other. <laughs> very handy, just enough distance so you can get a bit of a break when you need one, and but close enough that you can get together whenever you want. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I must say, um, I really like the colour and your studio thank you i noticed that you have a similar color scheme going on i just need some swords to hang on my wall (laughs) yeah although i mean the listeners can't see it but i saw the sword on your arm so clearly you're you're Ah. swordy people um (laughs) well okay so so uh how did you guys get into fight direction what led to this you want to start first right yeah, I'm happy to um, to go first. So um, I I started off, I know it's not sword work, but I started uh, doing martial arts when I was a child, when I was about eight, and I did karate. And I worked up through the ranks and got, um, got a black belt in karate. And I came to London, I grew up in Wales, and I came to London to train to be an actor at Rosebury Food College. And I did a BA, three-year course in acting, and I found stage combat and you got to play with swords. And it was like, it was amazing. I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. And there was there was enough connection to karate and the skills that I had learned as a martial artist that helped create a foundation for the work that I needed 
with swordplay. Um, so that's how I did that. Then I left drama school, wandered around trying to be an actor for a little while and was uh, found the job of fight directing. And I was like, oh my God, that's what I want to do. I had this epiphany in the bath, actually, that I was like, I want to be a fight director. And so started working towards that process really of getting more performance certifications in stage combat and then working towards being an instructor and then making my way to starting to build my credits as a fight director. Okay. And Ruth? Um, so I guess I started quite young in, in you know in regards of not really, you, know, you look back at your life and go, oh, yeah, I can kind of see where it comes from now, but at the time I didn't quite understand. But as a kid, I was one of those kind of rough and tumble kids, and I think Ray was probably the same. I'm very much sort of out and playing, and I was playing soldiers with the neighbours and running around with table legs and jumping off of garages and, and all that sort of thing, trying to be heroic. And I think that kind of stayed with me when I went to college, um, again, training to be an actor, but discovered a little bit about stage combat and fencing there and thought, this is fun, I quite like this, but had no idea how to go about it. I then got a job, uh, I'm from Nottingham, so this was in Nottingham. I got a job as Maid Marion for a few years, um, which is kind of the only sort of acting, fighting job I could find. So uh, I was lucky that I got to play with swords, but rather badly. It, you know, we weren't well trained or anything. We were kind of lumping these things around. Learned a bit about archery and um, also got to do some fun stuff like um, be a magician's assistant. So line of better nails and do some fire eating and stuff. So all that sort of stuff became quite useful later on. Uh, or became quite applicable later on in my career. Uh, and then moved to London like Ray, was trying to find some sort of bike training that was to do with theatre or film. Uh, ended up on a course where I met Rachel. Um, and we just kind of hit it off. You know, we used to kind of uh, go to this training course. And at the end of the night, we'd sit in the pub and drink and talk and realize we'll be really antisocial because we were just like bah, 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 about how we're going to take over the world and how fight was everything and we were just completely absorbed in that and after about a year of this going meh, 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 <laughs> about all wonderful fight things we actually you know got the guts together and uh, actually set up the company Arciani so long story long sorry <laughs> <laughs> that's okay this is a long form <laughs> show um okay so so you guys met and then you decided that the, the area that you're most into is, is fight and I think pretty much every listener understands that moment when you first encounter proper swords. And it's like, oh my God, yeah. these are actually real. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's magic. It's absolutely magic. I still have my first reenactment sword, I think, which is like a banana now. <laughs> so badly. I had no idea what I was doing, just throwing this thing around. It is literally like a banana. It's terrible. So I've learned from that. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> be better. Sure. Um, so, uh, actually, this, this isn't on the list of questions that I gave you, but I'm just, just curious. What was your first production that you worked on as Arciani? Oh, my gosh. I can't possibly remember that. Really? Yeah, because we do about 40 shows a year. <laughs> oh, wow. But it isn't, isn't the, first, the first one you did together? It's like, isn't that... Kind of special or like oh, oh um what moments are you referring to guy of the first that I said <laughs> <laughs> well you see I I was thinking about the first like the first time you actually got paid by 
a company mm. to do the thing you want to do. Because I, I vividly remember my first class teaching historical sourcemanship as a professional, right? I will never forget it. It's one of the most important moments of my entire life. And I have two kids, so there have been quite a lot yeah. of important moments, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I was just, just curious. So, okay, maybe maybe, maybe there's just only such a, a blur of amazing jobs that you've forgotten the first one, but... That's terrible, I, isn't it? I'm already guilty now. No, I, think, okay. I remember a show that we, it wasn't the first show, but I think it was the first show where we were able to, um, we had a meeting and we were able to kind of get the right amount of time that we needed to do the job. Right. And it was for uh, the Three Musketeers and it was for the Unicorn Theatre. And we had a great meeting. It was, um, it was directed by the artistic director of the time. And we had a great meeting with her beforehand and we were able to, because they had a, a rep company, we were able to work with them before they actually started rehearsals on the play, laying down some foundation skills and training them in sword work. And that really helped us create some brilliant fun fights and some actually that I, some of the those clips are on our uh, one of our trailers. And I still feel really proud of the work that everybody did on that show. It was a lot of fun to work on. And yeah, it was, it was hard work as it always is, right? But yeah, yeah. it was good. But it must be really helpful if you can actually work with them properly beforehand and get them moving right before exactly. they actually learn the choreography. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not always time for that, but yeah, it makes a massive difference. Sure. Um, now, obviously the best fights all have weapons. Right. I mean, unarmed combat's great, but but I think I think we're all we're all into the weapons. So, and of course, as soon as you have a weapon, everything gets more dangerous. So, how do you keep everyone safe? So you're absolutely right. It definitely does up the danger level. And one of the things, obviously, that we do is we don't work with shops. So okay. all of our swords are blunt um, and they don't have points on them either, but we are often working with metal um, and we never allow any targeting to the face or any point crossing the face line because of course actors don't wear masks. Um, and we use a combination of distance and time to help keep everybody safe as well as of course, not just making out. So everything is choreographed and everybody knows where everybody needs to be, um, you know, which is very different to normal fencing. Um, yeah. It's, it's, sorry, sorry. go ahead. It's, um, when, we, when we trained for the BADC, British Academy of Dramatic Combat, you, you learn certain sort of underlining safe principles, like a scaffolding. Which, uh, which is really good because it always sits there. And then obviously through your career, then you find new and interesting ways to augment that or change that or approach it in a different way. And one of the interesting things we found recently is because of COVID, um, it's brought back the weapons work. So because we can't get... Close, <laughs> Socially distance, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We got really exactly. excited. We got, yeah, we got to do a staff fight on As You Like It on the Globe stage. And I don't think we'd ever get to put a staff fight on the Globe stage otherwise. And we stood back and looked at it and went, wow, that looks great here. Like it was always supposed to be. Like there's supposed to be a staff fight on that stage. It looked fabulous. And I don't think we'd have had that chance otherwise. So that distance was fabulous. 
Um, obviously, we've been using things like Longsword as well, just because, again, you've got a nice bit of distance because of COVID. Um, what we've also had to do is things like try to incorporate the use of guns. We do a lot of theatrical handguns. Um, I was going to ask you about the guns, because yeah. I'm a shooter myself. And when I lived in oh. Finland, I actually had like like proper pistols and, you know, we'd go oh, down lovely. the range and blast holes in bits of paper. And Yeah, uh, excellent. Couldn't, couldn't use those on stage, of course, because... No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the laws are slightly different, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I left my guns in Finland when I, when I moved over here which oh. broke my heart, but there we go. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? The, the rules are really strict. But, yeah. So, but then so, the crime's really low, so, you know. Yeah, but then, so your, the, the guns, what are, what are they like? What makes them safe to practice with? Well, I think, well, we refuse to use, uh, well, I say that, I mean, I say it depends on the circumstance. Generally in theatre, we won't use a real firearm, even with a blank, we just won't go there. Mm -hmm. So we keep it super safe. So we create certain parameters that we set up ourselves in order to keep people safe about distances and who you can aim at. And we've done a lot of research into UK gun law over the years, and we try and stay very current. So we make sure we don't do anything that's going to breach that or if we are then everybody knows and everybody kind of signs up for that because there's a certain amount of things that you're going to do with a fake gun on stage which means you will be potentially breaking the law so it's a bit weird you do have a defense in law but it's it's really sort of muddy so things get really complicated so we try and train everybody in uh, you know how they can operate these things safely uh, and then yeah then it's the parameters basically staying within the law but you're right we will use all the good stuff that we would use from real firearms course. So Rachel loves the four rules, which I'm sure you will recognise. <laughs> Do you want to say the four rules, Ray? Because that, that's your favourite. Only because you don't remember them, right? I think Rachel loves them. Um, <laughs> so uh, treat all uh, guns as if they're loaded at all yep. times. Don't point the gun at anything you're not willing to destroy. Yep. Keep your finger off the trigger until your yep. sights are on target and you're ready to fire. And be sure of your target and what's beyond it. So, sounds it's, sounds it's pretty much like what I was taught. Like, there's nothing <laughs> bugs me more than seeing someone who's supposed to know how to use a gun, and they're in a they're not actually ready to aim, and they've got their finger on the trigger like they're about to shoot themselves in the foot. It's like <laughs> shouting was, at the was, telly moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's like no, yeah. get that finger out. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. So okay, so if you're not using blanks. How do you how do you make a gunshot look right on stage? Well, we'll um, use a purpose-built blank firer, so okay. it doesn't have an open barrel. You know. So oh, sorry, I, I thought you meant you wouldn't use blanks at all. No, sorry. Yeah, we just won't use a firearm with blanks in theatre. Oh God, no. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in film, you know, but in theatre, no. So you know, so purpose-built okay. blank firearms we use all the time, and because okay. of the explosive element, we have to do a lot of health, safety, and risk assessing on all of that. Or we okay. use, you know, about you know, riffs of various types and sound effects, or third-person fire off stage, that sort of thing, really. But okay. like everything, we always have like a little process, whether it's with a staff or a sword or a knife or or a fist or, or a gun. There's always like a safe order of attack, which we will install. It's the same with guns. There's certain rules about how you do things each time. You will always go through this little process. It won't be seen by the audience, but no. it's there. So like a safe order of attack is probably the best way I can describe that. Yeah. Um, so, okay. To me, the, the obvious, well, one obvious problem of, of shooting blanks on stage what do you do about ear protection 
Because you can't be there with these. I mean, I'm, I'm wearing these great big earmuffs at the moment, but you know, my shooting earmuffs are you know, beefy and you know, it look completely ridiculous under an Elizabethan wig. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know, Ray's had experience of using them, haven't you? Actually, wearing them in show. Yeah, so I mean, we have to, by law, offer everybody. Everybody has to be offered ear protection. Okay. Um, the audience need to be told and informed if there are, mm. you know, that there are loud bangs, or depending on also because there are law implications with that, that you may want to be telling them that there are realistic imitation firearms being used in the show. Um, but we have worked with actors who have made the decision to work with um, with. Uh, ear defenders or actually what are they called earplugs that's ear it plugs. and you can get certain earplugs that will re a noise reduce the noise rather than right. block the noise out or maybe somebody just wants to wear one in one ear or two but it's it's a it's a really good point and it may well be the deciding factor as to whether there is an on-stage fire or whether there's an off-stage fire but we will okay. always sort of do a decibel check and it generally does go through peaks through the decibel limit but you'll find that sometimes other noises in the show are sometimes Loud. louder yeah, than the sure. blank fire so it's again it's another part of that sort of risk assessing and making sure everyone is comfortable yeah because i did once when i was shooting a long time ago i was alone in the range and i thought well what the hell let's just see how loud it really is and i took my ear defenders off and i just just to see and i shot like one just 22 caliber shot one downrange and it was like holy shit that's loud obviously it's yeah. in an enclosed space so it's, it's and that's massive. it your massive space walls, will but. your space will depend and obviously when you get bodies in that space as well that will soak up some of the sound as yeah. well and you know depending on what the set, set's built out of it all has an effect on how much the sound like we were just in a in a black box theater just last week actually and we uh, were firing eight mil and it was so loud, it was just rattling around that space. So there's no way you'd want to be in there listening to that, you know, having that exposure eight shows a week, 10 shows a week. I don't think, yeah. well, not I wouldn't anyway. Yeah, and maybe the most frightened I've ever been in a theatre is when an actor with a firearm tracked the audience with it. Mm. I wanted to kill him so badly. Yeah, I'm so like, pleased you said that, Guy, because it's a massive, we get asked to do that a lot. No. It seems to be a thing of, you know, and it is it is definitely one of our big rules is do not point the gun at the audience because the audience don't know what it is that you have in your hands. You don't know right. what you're triggering. You don't know what their past experiences have been. It's absolutely disrespectful and definitely crosses a line for us and not, not something we would um, ever agree to or want to be in a show that we work with um you know so it's really nice to hear you say that i'm sorry you had that experience <laughs> but it's nice it's nice to hear that yeah it's 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 super scary and i was thinking you know if, if that sh tour went if that show went touring in america then mm -hmm. you yeah. somebody points a gun at you and you happen to be armed you are entirely justified in opening fire generally speaking yeah you don't know yeah. I mean, okay, obviously, it's on stage, you are not, you're probably not legally justified, but depending on what state you're in, you might very well get away with it because you don't know what, what that gun is. You haven't examined it. Right. Your, your, your stage is a public place, and by law, well, in the UK anyway, if people have paid to be there, it's a public space. And so, therefore, it's just like pointing a, a gun shaped thing at them on the street. 
Right. You know, it's actually legally not much different, which is one of the reasons why we're like, no. And we get creative about where these things are pointed. We tra- we spend ages tracking where the end of the the muzzle goes. You know. No. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. So so if I go to one of your shows, um, I don't need to go packing. I'll be all right. <laughs> well, we it, sometimes I think I think it's interesting because there are times where it feels like it's pointing at you. But it won't be, and it won't be there to, to intimidate you, if that makes right. sense. It won't be sure. used as a device to intimidate the audience. But there are times where maybe you'll be pointing at the balcony or you'll be pointing at a light or something. Mm-hmm. And obviously, depending on your sight line, it might look like you're pointing towards some unknown somewhere within the audience. You know, if you write a book and put it on Amazon, on the cover, you cannot have a gun pointed at the reader. They will not let it through their quality control. That's interesting. You can have them, you can have them pointing off to the side, but if they're pointing actually out at the reader, Amazon. At least this was true a year ago when I tried to put a cover up which had that on it. Um, wow! And they're like, no, 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 get the art redone because you can't have the gun pointing at the person, so even even in a picture. So interesting. Further backs up the don't point again at the audience. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Okay. Now, I know that uh, in in Britain, it is super hard to get hold of firearms, right? Mm -hmm. Even even like blank firing replicas or BB guns. They have all sorts of legislation around it. Um, But am I right in thinking you guys actually provide guns for... We, you, you are right. We will hire guns out to productions uh, if they follow our. (laughs) There are. It's not just like we're giving guns to anyone. There are strict rules that they have to follow and they have to abide. And um, you know, the the if they're filming, they need to make sure that they inform inform the police and tell us the CAD number. There are very strict rules in place. But if they meet those criteria, then yes, we will hire. uh, guns out or realistic imitation firearms out to um, theatre productions and film productions as well. What's the cap? Generally, oh, sorry. Yeah, so it's a case incident number, essentially. The police okay. give you a number which has got the date in it and stuff. And it's just... Oh, so if somebody calls in, you can just say, it's this thing, this number here, and don't worry. We'll, we'll always tell the police. So, you know, what we're doing with these things, just in case. So if anybody sure. does, particularly in London... You know, they, they'll think there's some sort of terrorist attack going on. So we always let them know. So that's when we're sort of tracking that. But we we often won't hire to people who haven't done our training, which sounds very self-serving. But it's a way of us knowing what they know. It's like, yeah, do you really I, give me that thing? You know, you can imagine the number of like amateur productions that have asked to borrow some of my swords. <laughs> I'm like. There is no way in hell you're borrowing my swords unless. OK, if you have a qualified fight director. Fine, but I will I will lend them to the fight director, not to you. Right. Or send me your actors, and I will train them and choreograph the fight for you if necessary. Um, and you know, if, if I'm uncomfortable with their safety, then I won't let it. Yeah. Of course, I yeah. totally get that, and we do the same. If anyone needs anything that is actually for any. Uh, non-gun items that we're hiring out we will ask for similar questions in terms of do you have somebody who is you know trained to 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 work with your actors on this are you using them for practical use or are you using them for prop use I mean 
for just the very term that if you want prop use and you're choosing an item or you want practical use, sorry, and you're choosing an item that is not built for hitting another sword against another sword or you're trying to hire an aluminium sword versus a steel sword and you want to hit them together, you know, so for that purpose as well. But yeah, otherwise they just come back like with the reenactment sword, right? They just <laughs> come back <laughs> like bananas. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had that problem too. Like um, I lent a pair of long swords to a show that had a fight director and everything. And, and you know, they actually sort of, the, the swords came back in a not too dinged up but they'd done the kind of classic belly cut finish, mm. right? And it was in summer. And so the actors were sweating. And so the sword was basically wiped with a wet, salty rag at the end of each show, at the end of each fight. And nobody thought to clean them. Uh, so they we came back. Yes, rusty, right? We, we send yeah. out cleaning kits with all of our swords. Yeah, it was so bad. I mean, I had a, an in, a sort of a, if you bugger up my sword, you owe me this much money so I can buy a new one clause. And it was mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. Look, I'm really sorry, but that thing is trashed. So Yeah. Well, sometimes you can't get it out. When it goes black and gets yeah. right into the back, they really haven't wiped it down at all. You know, they get like finger marks and stuff. Yeah. We're like, oh, well we're stuck with that then <laughs> right yeah and fake blood fake blood on a blade oh, no. as well has a similar that's, sort of <laughs> that's not good so do you i mean do you guys use fake blood at all yeah i mean we um we actually sell fake blood as well okay. it's called splud <laughs> um, and we sell two tri- types so it's uh we sell uh, basically a thin and a, and a, uh, a thick a splat and spurt um, <laughs> okay just to amuse ourselves that's it all. Is great <laughs> um okay but, but i'm guessing you don't do the little explosive packets which make the blood kind of appear on no squibs no, no. That you you basically need to have yeah it's a little um radio operated detonator yeah that you yeah you need a person you need a, you need a person to come and rig you up with one of those Right. human with wires <laughs> okay so so if i need a bucket of fake blood and a gun yeah, <laughs> yeah. fantastic or, or swords or knives or you know yeah. all sorts of weird and wonderful items we have in our uh, in our cupboards riot gear <laughs> excellent <laughs> if you go into a fancy dress you know <laughs> no no we're not a fancy dress company please don't <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, you you heard it here, peeps. If you need blood or guns <laughs> <laughs> or riot gear, Arsiani are the place to go. Brilliant. In the UK, at least. I, I don't imagine you, you do much work. No, <laughs> and especially not now in Europe, huh? No. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, just yeah, a pain to get them in and out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, um, safety obviously isn't, it's not all about controlling the violence. There's the psychological safety aspect mm-hmm. of this and um you also do intimacy direction now i've had um a friend of mine called siobhan richardson on the show before we know yeah she's great and and she's a she's an intimacy director too and she was the person who actually introduced me to the whole idea of it and as soon as she said it's this particular specialization i was like Holy crap, why was that not obviously necessary from the very beginning? Right, why is this a relatively new thing? But 
you know, you know more about it than I do. So why don't you tell us how does intimacy direction work? What is it all about? I think essentially, because there's probably different approaches from different people depending on their own background and their training, etc. But ultimately, it's, it's about good preparation and it's about communication. You know, we'll do things like we'll set up sort of boundaries, etc. And, you know, and we'll establish how people are going to work in the space together. Um, but also a lot of it is like looking after everyone involved. So there's a strong mental health element as well and being an advocate for people as well. Um, and it gets very much hand in hand, I think, with stage combat. I don't know whether you find this when you're choreographing, that often you become the go-to person for the actor's well-being anyway, because you're kind of a health and safety person in a way. They'll often come to you about aches and pains and stuff. Oh, and sure. it's the next step for them to go, I'm not comfortable with this or, or whatever. So that kind of happens naturally. But when you know you're about to deal with a scene of an intimate nature, whether that be a sex scene or establishing a relationship with someone else, whatever that is that you're doing, um, really, I think the most important thing is getting everyone on the same page. It's, it's communication and it's getting everyone to be complicit. You can't do anything unless people agree. And anything else you'd add to that, Ray? And of course, it's a, it, it changes depending on what's required in the room and all of that. But I think ultimately what it comes down to is what is the story we're telling? What is that? So, we'll, you know, with regards to talking to the director and the cast, what is the story that we're telling? So you agree on that fundamentally so that we're all working towards the same external objective and then have a conversation about how do we do that? How do we go about that? And make sure that everybody has an equal voice in the room and that no one is kind of dominating that in a way. And yes, of course, all of the things that Ruth said about finding, you know, what, where people's comfort zones are, because what we find in both fight direction and intimacy direction is that when you find or name or establish your edge, it means and you give people permission to opt out and to name their own comfort levels. It allows the work to really flourish because people feel safer. And I think sometimes people think, oh, Oh, I don't like when we first started out and like Ruth and I first started fight directing, there was a, a theme around um, we'd meet with directors to work on their production. And obviously we're like just dying to work, you know, we're like, oh, yeah, we'll do whatever, you know. And they're like, OK, so the re I don't usually work with fight directors because I don't want it to look choreographed. And I think in answer to what you were saying about, you know, intimacy direction, I think the key is the same is that directors want it to be magic. They want it to yeah. have the chemistry. And what I think people realize is that chemistry can only last maybe one, maybe you might find it in rehearsal. Maybe you might find it in the audition, but it is not something that unless you work it and you find it so that it is repeatable, so that it's telling the same story, that kiss moment that lasted 10 minutes in rehearsal will turn, you know, not 10 minutes, that's a long time, but 10 beats in rehearsal might end up by the time everyone's trying to get to the pub at the end of the show, only one beat and the moment's gone, the magic's gone, you know? So making sure that just in the same way that we work with fight, that we're looking for the story. What is the story? I want it to look unchoreographed. I want it to look dot, dot, dot. What are we trying to tell here? And what do we need to do that? And making sure that each beat is answered in that story and therefore everyone's safe and comfortable and then they can do their job, right? 
and it's, it's the same when like training the more advanced levels in martial arts, right? We're yeah. often going to some very, very psychologically dangerous places where mm-hmm. you're dealing with really, really nasty things. Right. And yeah. for me, the hardest thing is, because on the one hand, the students have to trust me, right? Which generally means that they are open to suggestion. In other words, they will tend to do it because I say they can do it rather than because they actually want to do it. Right. So like, mm. yeah. so what I have to do is try and create a, a space in which they they feel they can actually like check in with their own things and go, actually, you know what, today, not a good day for this. Or actually, this particular thing, no, not doing that, mm-hmm. right? Because it's really, really easy to put them in a in a situation where they they would feel that that they can't say that because maybe everyone else is doing it and they don't want to be the person left out, or maybe they think that if they say no, then you know me or the rest of the students will think less of them or whatever, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so what do you guys do to make it so that actors in a vulnerable position feel able to tell the director to fuck off? Oh, well, well, what we will try and do before we get to that point, hopefully, <laughs> um, you know, you know, of course, um, but hopefully we've already had conversations with them sort of, uh, sort of privately too. So mm-hmm. for example, working on the show recently, uh, Romeo and Juliet, so I'm not going to go into too much detail, but there's, there's some really go there places that, that um, uh, incidents are happening in that show. And, talking to one actress, had to, we had to really find her alternative ways of getting the job done, i.e. she had to die. So we needed to make sure that she didn't take herself there. So we were trying to establish ways for her to do that. So, you know, either making it, as Ray was saying about beats, a very technical exercise that's removed from her, or it's a thing that's happening to her character, not her. So she feels she has absolute control on that moment and that situation that she's not going into. And it's exactly the same with intimacy. You know, the individuals have to know that they have absolute control in that moment and they're only going to go to where they want to go and they can protect themselves by not actually taking the whole of themselves into that, if that makes sense. So it's emotionally and mentally and physically, they don't really have to go there, but we can help them create the illusion of going there. I hope that makes sense. So hopefully they don't, you know, then they feel empowered to say, I need help with that so they don't have to have those awkward conversations with the director. I, I think that that in terms of, I think in terms of that's where, that's what our job is, guys, mm-hmm. to be the person yeah. in between the fuck off, you know? Like, oh, okay. Yeah. So, so that, you know, the director talks about what they want. We have the conversation about how we're going to get there. And then I feel like it's our job to fulfill the director's vision it's not necessarily the director's job to be put, putting xyz move in they can right, request okay. of course but it's it's so i think it is about trying to find a way that there isn't conflict within the room because the minute we've got to the work the way the the with the minute we've got conflict then we have and of course it happens of course it does sure. but we need to try to avoid having conflict so that everyone can do their job and exactly like Ruth says, it's trying to get like we've been in we've we've been to those ends. I mean, we are we've been called into jobs before now, all too often where something has happened. 
Mm. And someone has either slapped somebody or somebody, you know, oh, I just felt it. I felt it. That it was the right thing. Or, you know, and then we get called in going, oh, my God, I've got a problem within my cast because somebody has done this. And, that, you know, now the boundaries right. have been broken. So I think we've had loads of experience of going into rooms where the conflict has already happened <laughs> to go, right, OK, how do we unravel that conflict? And, you know, or how do we? Yeah, well, that's what we've had to do. But how do we stop it happening in the first place is the ideal, right? But we are sometimes called. Uh, I guess so. Uh, like one of the things that we have is um, it's senior students in the school where if a student for whatever reason doesn't feel comfortable bringing something to me or to some other instructor, they can go to one of these senior students and just have a quiet word with them instead. And then it gets relayed up. And so they're not put in that position of having to actually have yeah, to say these things right. to someone who's kind of further up the chain. So I guess yeah. you kind of fit, you're like a buffer state between the vulnerable actor and the powerful director who might push them into doing things they don't want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, we all know it happens, right? And it, sure. for whatever reason, you know, and all we if we're there, we're present. We all we can do is our best to try and protect everyone. But it's interesting sometimes how we will meet directors who are very much like, I really don't want to get this wrong. I mean, really early on mm. on, on the film we did, really early on in our careers, one of the first things we saw a great director we were working with on this horror movie, and it was it was. Uh, there were nasty themes in this movie and he really was uncomfortable dealing with the sex that was in the movie. There's no new, actual nudity or anything, mm -hmm. but he was so uncomfortable with the, well, a little bit, you know, um, <laughs> but like the whole movie, or you weren't really seeing sex yeah. in that way. It was like, how do we do this? Because he really was so uncomfortable. He just, he didn't want to have to go there, you know, fair enough, mm. you know, so it was like, fine, you know, it's all right, we'll, we'll, we'll look after everyone for you. I mean, I, I think that's one, that's how it, that's how we were doing intimacy direction before intimacy direction was a thing, mm. was exactly for that. Maybe we're working on a, a rape scene or, a, you know, and, or, and then, you know, somebody says, oh, do you do sex scenes as well? You know, and you're like, uh, yeah okay you know because exactly that people don't want to do them any they don't they don't want to do them they don't feel comfortable they don't know how to approach them so we found ourselves sort of stepping into that role before it was even a role under our fight coordinating you know hat I think a lot of fight directors and movement directors find themselves doing those sort of crossover roles uh on occasion you know um because they're the person that's there that they trust and think yeah. is the health and safety person who in this physical, you're a physical person. <laughs> Can you deal with this physical thing, please? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny, isn't it? How like fight direction has been a thing since forever, but this intimacy direction thing is a lot newer and how yeah, a lot of people are like totally comfortable with like physical violence. Oh, we'd have a sword fight and we can murder this person and cut their throat and chop them into bits and burn them at the stake and do whatever else. And that's fine. But the sex is really uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> That's a really good point. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very odd. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about it? Isn't it odd? And how, you know, you could have, you know, a, a, a movie rated like 12 where people got get shot and thrown out of airplanes and, mm. you know, all sorts of stuff. But, you know, if, if an actress takes her top off, it's a 15. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's such a good it's such a good point and I I guess because I spend quite a lot of time in my job 
reading scripts or, you know, visualizing or looking at violence or Ruth and I'll be having a conversation about how we're going to work something out and be like, oh yeah, really nice. Oh, that's great. Oh, I love that idea that I'm definitely within the concept of like, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, let's burn them. And we'll do obviously not real, but if you hear our conversations on the tube, sometimes it certainly sounds probably quite disturbing, but I don't have, I don't have uh, an answer to your question. Really. You're absolutely right. It's, I guess one thing is real and one thing is fantasy, but that doesn't mean society. Yeah. It says a lot about our society. Isn't it? Yeah, it's a cultural observation, really. It's like, like yeah. and this has always been the case, you know, mm. like since since movies became a thing, like it's perfectly all right to shoot people, but anything sexy gets a lot of growing up suddenly. Sorry? Because that's cool and entertaining. It's odd, isn't it? You're yeah, so right. It, so strange. It is, it is very odd. Um, oh. All right. So I do have to ask because I'm, at least half of the listeners will be wondering. Um, what do you think are the best fight scenes on stage or screen from a technical perspective or from, from your perspective? Gosh. Ruth, I know you might have actual names, which is probably what people want. I, the things that I look for um, in terms of what is how, how things are shot in, in film, okay. I think a lot of the time things are shot to be sort of suggested with a wavy kind of camera option or cut so that you miss a lot of the action and therefore a lot of the storytelling. So I feel like sometimes, you know, when something is shot well from a technical perspective and it's telling the story is great. I love things that look, um, that look unchoreographed, that hide the technical, that look messy. I think, you know, when I said earlier about when we used to meet with directors early on and they'd say, I want an unchoreographed fight. Of course, we were dying to get a job. So we'd go together back, you know, and find somewhere to rehearse and go, how the hell are we going to do this? And we basically have built our career on trying to make things look messy and unchoreographed. And so I like it when I see that and it tells the story um, and performed well. But over to Ruth with some uh, some actual specifics. Oh, <laughs> It varies, isn't it? As you go through your career, you know, different ideas, you know, change. But yeah, I love anything that looks really either painful, like there's a, a, a good truth in the reality of like, oh, right. So for example, like some of the stuff on Game of Thrones, like some of those battle scenes where people are just being swallowed into the mud, yeah. when it's just overwhelming bodies and carnage and you can't tell what's going on. Lovely, you know, just really great work. <laughs> so all that sort of lovely mess, I know. Lovely, it's gorgeous. Lovely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very pretty. Um, and I guess that leads into things like, I mean, it's a classic to mention the duelist, of course, but yeah. of its time, I mean, it, it, it really was good storytelling in, in terms of its grim. There's right. blood. It hurts. It's not that saber fight in the basement. Oh yes. Oh my god! And at the end of it, they're so tired. They're basically just sort of staggering about and leaning on their swords, and then just taking these hoofing great big swings at each other. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. Not a nice bit of storytelling. And I am a massive fan of the the old Bond movies. So really, I think. Yeah, I know. I know the tagline. No, I I love Um, Bond too, but I very rarely hear that. Well, the fights are of a type, right? But I do remember being struck as a kid, for, you know, Dr. No being, it was Dr. No that had Robert Shaw in, but there's a great train carriage fight, which I think 
was really inspired where they're in a small space and they're bouncing off the walls and it's legs are kimbo and yeah. it's really not nice. I mean, it's like, it's, it's not pretty. No one looks heroic and it's just messy and it's ugly. Desperate. And I remember being struck by that and I thought, that's great. <laughs> more of that, more legs up over your head and <laughs> being dumped on your head. You know, brilliant. Let's go for that. And, you know, so yeah, that, that sort of, you know, like Ray says, really messy things that look painful uh, and are, are convincing and you know serve the needs of the story you know i hate the shaky camera thing i want to see it you know guy i've yes, got I a question for thing. you yeah go ahead how many times do you watch a movie with a sword fight in it and the minute they pick up a sword you go they can't fight they can't use that how okay. often does that happen <laughs> almost do you not do that I want, okay, I took my kids to see um, the Black Widow movie last weekend. First time mm-hmm. back in a cinema since COVID. And, oh, I love cinema. Um, le- leaving aside the film, um, there was a trailer for some other film. And there are these people, who want some, one person who's clearly the hero, um, and there's a bunch of baddies who are clearly the baddies and he's fighting them on, I think it's on top of a moving train. I don't remember the name of the film. And my youngest daughter looked at me and said, Daddy, are they doing that properly? And I went, <laughs> no. Because, <laughs> I mean, there, there was one moment, there's one moment where there's, there's a cut coming from behind and he turns around and just puts his sword in the way and it's completely like, like sticking up vertically out of his fist. Mm-hmm. There's no mechanical support there at all. And he puts it out and they kind of go ping and then he goes back and <laughs> there. And it was just like, it was shockingly crap. Most, <laughs> most, most, most sword fights on screen are shockingly crap. I mean, the yeah. Game of Thrones, like, have oh, these people the, never the, held a sword dreadful. before? Yeah, right? dreadful. Yeah. Dreadful stuff in there too. Right. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, it's like, particularly upsetting, isn't it, when they're supposed to be like warriors who are really high yes, trained. They've exactly. Clearly got no idea, right. bless them, because they don't have okay. the time and all the training. Do you, do you remember the Fellowship of the Ring movie, the first yes. of the three? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yes. You know that bit where Boromir is training the hobbits in sword fighting. <laughs> okay. Yes. I have a theory as to why it's so shit. Okay. <laughs> He has already been taken over by the ring and he is deliberately teaching them to get killed. Yeah. <laughs> that is the I'm only rational explanation for that. Uh, oh, that don't. God awful excuse for a, a, a fencing like lesson. It was, yeah. I. Yeah. It's like that, isn't it? It's, that's, the, that's the problem with this business, really, isn't it? You can't. It's very difficult to watch anything you like. Hence, yeah. our list being quite short. <laughs> right. But here's a funny thing. The unarmed combat stuff that they're doing on screen these days is absolutely stunning, right? And they're doing throws and locks and stuff that mm-hmm. are just... These are like the sorts of things that like professional WWF fighters do, who are probably, I think, the best stage competents on the planet because they really sell it. Um, but that's but, because the people doing it are 
the WWE, you know. Right, right, yeah, of course, of course. They're of course. doubled, right? Which is what of course, isn't of happening in Game of Thrones or, right. you know, they're not and, doubling them. But, but I mean, so in, in, the, in the unarmed stuff, you get these absolutely extraordinarily technically difficult fights mm-hmm. done mm-hmm. to this astonishingly high standard. And then when the blades come out, it all turns, turns to shit. Right. I think I, I think you're right, and I do think that is largely to do with doubling. Like the people doing mm-hmm. the gymnastic sure. stuff are the people who are doubled and they're trained to do that. But also, one of the differences is that, as you know, is that when you're doing unarmed combat, you're much closer together, mm. so time is shortened. Everything happens a lot quicker. Whereas when you're working with a blade, the camera, you're further apart. The shot is slightly wider. It's harder to cheat a lot of those elements and it's certainly harder to cheat you know doubles in there as well nasty wigs from behind I guess but then you don't <laughs> see the sword fight quite so well you know so um but I couldn't agree with you more and I just like wish everybody would get trained to hold a sword and to use it and you know yeah, at least to like, hold it properly I mean yeah Keanu Reeves famously did like nine months of kung fu training yeah. before uh, doing the matrix right yeah uh, and it really yeah. shows it was epic yeah. it was so well done mm. You know, it would be lovely if they did that sort of thing for actors when they're using money, place, but they just it? don't. Yeah, it's always yeah. down to time and money. There's I agree. Yeah. And what you actually see in Game of Thrones is actually their sword handling gets better as the series goes on. Well, they've had some practice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, here's a question that I ask all of my guests, and yeah, you know, it. How you interpret the question is as interesting, perhaps, as the answer itself. So what is the best idea you have not acted on? Mm, this is really hard. Yeah, we did struggle when you sent this through. Yeah. Good. Excellent. Glad to hear it. If it was all easy, it'd be a waste of time. My first idea, isn't it? My first answer to this was actually, I think we have, like, we are ideas, you know, and it's kind of how we built the company was on ideas, but also on things we couldn't do. So we were like, um, how do you work with breakables? I don't know. Let's make a workshop on it and then we'll have to learn. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I did the same with books. You know, I, I needed to learn how to do rapier. So I wrote a book on rapier. Right, that's, exactly. that's how I learned how to do it. <laughs> so you know there's a lot of things like that um but I think we have spent quite a lot of brain power and time on building uh, an immersive theater show that we were hoping to make and create and also um uh, uh, a, f- a film at the time I suppose but it would probably be more in line with a series now of like gods and mortals you know so taking mm-hmm. all of the great gods and uh yeah just creating a series and on on that and their lives and their quests <laughs> so yeah epic sword fights so that those sorts of things I think anything that comes down to just the two of us being able to um work and create and make it happen but when it comes down to obviously having to f- find a lot more money, <laughs> <laughs> then we just, uh, yeah, end up going, oh, it's a bit too much like hard work having to get the loan or the whatever it'll take. Yeah, I, I, I find myself, <clears throat> sorry, I find myself steering away from projects where I'm entirely dependent on other people. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah. or in, in raising a large sum of money. I've mm. done a reasonably complicated project in that line before 
and it was so much work and so much waiting around for the other people to do their part of it so I could get on with my next part of it. Exactly. I mean, theatre producers, we've we've worked on shows where writers and producers have been talking about a show for 10 years. Right. I mean, before it's even managed to get into a space and into a rehearsal room, you know, like that to me is just, ah, oh, it's just too long, 10 years. I want it done now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Ruth, have you got anything about the brilliant idea? No. I think I think we've probably had loads of great ideas that have acted <laughs> on <laughs> because we you know we will throw things out there you know and see if it sticks a lot of the time like we'll just go let's try this you know and but, but give people a framework going this may not work we're going to give it a go see if that feels right no okay how about this no how about that Ooh, ah there's an element of that you know so we do a lot of throwing lots of ideas at things often uh, particularly if we're devising or if we're really trying to find uh, where the actor is comfortable or what they believe that that storyline is for that character there's often a lot of offering of ideas all the time and sometimes you get you will get really excited about an idea oh yes well I think we should flip them upside down and come over here and do a little cartwheel and, and they're like hmm and so you never get to fully realise that because you're like, oh, OK, that's not what we're Actually, you bring me to the quote of Richard Ryan, which was oh, yeah. uh, during a conversation we were talking about fight directing and he said to me, they'll kill your babies, you yeah. know, and it's it's been a really brilliant little piece of, uh, I suppose I took it as advice and uh, that I come back to when you do have those moments and those times where you're like, oh, I really want to do that and wouldn't it be amazing? And then someone just goes, we've got to cut that. We've got to cut that fight. Or we've got to cut that battle. Or we've got to, you know, we haven't got enough money for that. And you're like, oh. and yeah. it does sometimes feel really heart, heart-wrenching. Quilla um, Cooch has much to answer for. The what, sorry? Quilla Cooch. Arthur Quilla Cooch. Um, late 90, early 20th century literary critic and general man of letters wrote some influential books back in the day. And I think he's the origin of the term murder your darlings. Ah. So when, when you're writing something and you go through it, murder your darlings, because the stuff you're in love with is usually crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, Not being precious, huh? Yeah. yeah. But it's also I, a good thing, I think, for performers, for them to be allowed to make mistakes as well. I think it's really great if we can get into that place where they're happy to offer stuff and it, it's okay if right. it doesn't work you know which is nice I think that's a nice space to create if we can <laughs> yeah ab- absolutely and it's yeah, again we so also designed oh I'm so sorry we also yeah. designed a video game once Ruth an app we, oh, wow. we spent a lot of time in cars or traveling on planes or whatever <laughs> and so <laughs> we didn't actually come to fruition guide but we definitely worked all of the rules out oh, wow. and uh, what the characters would look like <laughs> I've forgotten all about that. Well, I mean, I've, I've produced a card game, which was an awful lot of work. Oh. Um, a video game is like an order of magnitude harder, I think. Because you, well, you didn't get it. didn't happen. But just think, like if you have, if you have like they sort of cartoon characters, like drawn characters, then they don't have opinions, right? And if you want to like flip <laughs> them upside down, come across the stage, do a cartwheel, and then exactly. take the legs off. You can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What were they called, Ruth? 
we were they were going to look a little bit like us uh I, I think they were vikings we definitely put them in the oh, and then we were like yeah. oh we could have them through the ages you know we yeah. designed a whole series oh, of gosh, fighting this. app games let's we'll do it again if anyone's listening who wants to make our game <laughs> <laughs> right you, you may be surprised. There are a lot of people in the games industry who are involved in the historical swordsmanship world. Are there? Like really oh, a lot. Really? Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. So, I get that, I suppose. I, I sort of understand that. That makes sense. I mean, it's play, right? Yeah. And, and it's also it's swords. Yeah. Mm. I mean, <laughs> you know. And, well, people and don't lot of, like that. Well, exactly. There are people. No, no. The, the, this show is, is for sword people. Right, obviously. The uh, sword guy for sword people. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but that's not everyone. Right? I mean, you, if, if you put a, like a table up at a, at a show somewhere, you have a bunch of swords on it, like at a reenactment event or a role-playing mm-hmm. convention or something like that, right? A bunch of people will walk right past the swords and not even look. And some people will notice the swords and move on and some will notice and they'll come and they'll maybe like poke around a bit and go away and some a few will come and they'll pick up a sword and it just you can just see them change it's like like a light goes on and everything rearranges slightly and they will they will they will measure their life from before swords (laughs) and after swords Right, I have seen it several hundred times, and it is unmistakable. Right, and those are the sort of people, and it's not everyone by a long shot. A lot of people they're into other things. Some people, I mean, I've had guests on here who, yes, they're totally sword people, but they're also knitters, and that got some of some knitted friends of mine who have no interest in swords very excited. Oh, finally, you've got somebody on your show. I'm actually interested to hear from. So brilliant. Right. You can knit scabbards, right? No, they wouldn't work. They'd be floppy and, and useless. You know what I find interesting, guys, about, and I haven't had that experience actually, but what I do find is that it, 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 I, I feel like with swords, there are people who feel like they ought to know and they need to tell you all that they feel they know <laughs> about that item. And I don't know whether yes. that's connected to our gender or whether that's a thing, but the, you know, the amount of people who maybe will pick up, oh, let's have a look at that then. Oh, let's have a, oh, I'll lay it on their feet. Oh, the balance of that is off. Oh, you, you know, that yeah. 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 Oh. <laughs> y- Yes, yes. That, uh, that I... feels like a large majority of people to me. <laughs> okay. I, I am not saying I have never mansplained. Because it's very hard as a bloke to get to the age of 47 without ever having done that sort of thing. But I can tell you, I do know what it's like to be mansplained at. Mm -hmm. Right? Because someone thinks they know about swords. Because they've seen stuff on TV and watched YouTube videos and what have you. And of course, I'm completely uninformed about such matters. And need to be put straight about certain things. Yeah, I'm, I, it's... It's funny the it, people that do that without re- even asking you what your connection is to that thing or why you might be ha- holding it away. You know, it's just that right, ass- yeah. assumption of, 
information at you. Um, I sound very, I'm very aware I might sound quite negative, but it, it does happen quite a lot, I think, in terms of that. I know the, the, the need to show you the knowing. Ownership. Um, and I, yeah. Yeah. With, with swords. With, with swords, swords particularly. Swords, yeah, I think so. More so than guns. I think with guns, there is definitely a, a sort of attractive factor that people yeah. want to gravitate towards them and want to pick them up and want to handle them. But I think swords comes this sort of, oh, I know something about that. Yeah. Um, and I, I must like tell you. a special magical thing that they want to have. You know, it's, there's something sort of other about swords because of the mm. connection to stories and mythology and fantasy, mm -hmm. I think, as well as it being a very practical, you know, we kill people with this thing, but also it's this wonderful fantasy thing that I Heroic. think is a little bit of magic. Yeah, it, it, yes, it's it magic. just draws, people want part of that, that magic, tingly thing, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I don't know, I must have. Now the I magic, tingly that. thing. I don't yeah, know what you're talking about. Don't, don't, Ruth, Ruth <laughs> you're, you're amongst friends here. <laughs> if only you could see the hand gestures that were going along with the magic tingly thing. Entirely different show. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, okay, so my, my, my last question. If you had a million quid or thereabouts, some large sum of money, it's imaginary money, so you can stretch the budget. To okay. spend on improving fight direction, how would you spend it? Outside the obvious of teaching everybody that it's really important that they get some training, you know. In it. When I say everybody, I mean... Uh, I, you, you can go with the obvious. Because, um, yeah. like, the specifics of how would you do it? Like, okay, so you would teach everyone, talk about, you know, what about, I don't know, make it part of the national curriculum for PE? Everyone has to do a year of historical swordsmanship. Yes. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I just thought that just, just that, this, that. It's a little I, young. I, That's a little I, young. I can't <laughs> teach kids anymore. I spent way too no, no, long. No, 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 okay. But also, you can't go to every high school in Britain and do it. You would, no, you would, true. There would need to be like every PE teacher would have to have swordsmanship as part of their mm -hmm. PE training. And because there's this compulsory element and... Yeah. yeah, I mean, that, I, I, that, I that's I, me maybe answering the question. You, you answer the question. I think that I think though, in that term, understanding that for us and swords people out there, I'm maybe vying away from your audience right here, but that working with swords and working with weapons is not just isolated in sort of working with swords and working with weapons. It really helps you in a myriad of ways, and it helps you understand your body. And it helps, it sort of allows you, like one of the things about working with fighting in general, when you are in a choreographed fight, you can only play the moment. That's what's so, I think, addictive about it for actors. Because as an actor, you're always wanting to be in the moment. And some, and that's the challenge, right? It's like, I was in the moment. How did I get there? I don't know. You're trying to recreate it. But when you're fighting, that's all you can do. The minute you think about what just went wrong or the minute you think about what's mm. coming up, the current moment and the current piece of choreography that you need to perform drops completely out of your head. So that is a massive skill, I think, to learn. And I, I think both Ruth and I are quite... Um, we can't do our job well if we're not working, or as well, maybe, 
if we're not working with people who understand their bodies? Or should I say we are limited? That's probably a better way of putting it, is that we are limited by do, in doing our job um, depending on the actor's skill. And so the job that you were referring to recently where we were working at the RSC, we were working with actors who did understand, you know, at least had had some really good training to advanced level at drama school, which meant that our job was so much easier because we weren't going, no, no, stop, no, no, no. <laughs> we didn't have to just keep putting the brakes on all the time that actually we could start working on the story and really working on the drama and the timing and the rhythm. Um, sorry, I've gone off on your million pound question. I That's suppose okay. it shows that I'm quite passionate about about We've always said about school, wouldn't we? Like, you know, we'd we'd always had this sort of fantasy idea of having this sort of venue where you can train, you know, in lots of different mm-hmm. things, including, you know, you know, sort of fighting, obviously, but also, you know, boxing and yoga and um, any martial arts that you like, you know, have a real sort of lot, well, a lot of choice of what you can do, a variety of things you can mm-hmm. do. But equally, you know, equally we'd have like a library of historical fight books, you know. Oh, yes. And, you know, have a little office there. And so we've always had this dream with, like, this little utopia, fight utopia that we'd have. You guys <laughs> must know Mike Loads. Yes. Well, well we yes. don't know know him personally, but, but you know of course is, right? we know yeah. of him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, he was on the show a little while ago, and his idea, the thing he would spend the money on is he would paint a castle, right? Because <laughs> castles were originally painted... Okay. Yeah. And I, it, I, I just yeah. thought that actually Mike's painted castle would be the perfect venue. Yes, let's do it. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Ruth, you brought up historical fencing books. Mm. Okay. Yes. And actually, I should have added this on into my list of questions. So I'm just going to like go off piste again. Um, okay. And yeah, usually the question I just asked is the last question, but it's my show and I can do what I like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, do you guys actually do um, sort of historical fencing, historical fencing research, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, we do, don't we? Like when we were teaching, I remember getting the old. Well, call it what you will. I, I call it I three three, but you know, but if you you know references that differently, old um, sword and buckler uh, treats me. And I remember trying to trying to pull that apart in class in the classroom with the students. Okay. Go, how do we? Why is he held it? You know, just looking at all of that, and literally just all of us were playing with it and exploring it because we had the weapons. We could do that, and we do, don't we? We we get great amounts of inspiration from these depending on what we're doing I think it's a yeah absolutely and I think there now with YouTube I mean when we started out it wasn't a thing right so we were looking at the pictures and the books and now with YouTube and people bringing these things to life it's so helpful (laughs) to us but I think we don't claim to be historical martial artists and we there is obviously a lot of those rules that we I mean we have a different purpose right like we are working to create the choreography and also the story and and also audiences don't understand the the minutiae of sword fights. So we need to make sure that the the arc of the story and the choreography and the musicality of the fight is telling that same story repeatedly. But I think we both have a massive respect and we have great friends of ours who are 
um, much more well-versed in these areas. And we love going to these workshops because it gives us ideas. Like recently we did a series of workshops with Jared Kirby, who did some things oh, online. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah. Um, you know, and just bringing some of that stuff and him, you know, bringing, bringing us some of the uh, old ways of training and some of the manuals to life for us. It's much better than reading Saviolo, you know, and <laughs> just going, what? My left foot does what? I'd much rather have someone like yourself make it come to life for me and put it into into my body. Do you know, I think quite a lot of my students come to me for training because they don't want to actually do the books. Uh-huh. But also quite a lot start out not being particularly interested in the books and then through the training start to want to basically like fact check my interpretation, see if they can catch me out. <laughs> And so they kind of they 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 get into the treatises that way, which is yeah. It's what a satisfying. supportive, unchallenging environment that you <laughs> you work in. Well, I try, but actually, actually, no, it's, it's really important because if you're if you're teaching students, um, like if you're if you're training like drones, zombies, or robots, then you want absolute obedience all the time. But if you're training people who have come to swordsmanship for some kind of, like they have this internal interest in the sword, they resonate with it and they want to learn to do it properly. Then if you think like historically, like Fiore de Liberi was training knights. Fiore was not a knight. He was of lower social station than the people he was training, right? Mm-hmm. And if he was giving Nicola Deste a class, there's no record that he ever did, but he dedicated his treatise to them, to, uh, to Nicola. Um, you can't imagine Fiore expecting obedience from the Marquis of Ferrara. That's absurd, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So, so you know, Fiore would show up, and the Marquis might say something like, or Galeazzo de Manta would say something like, um, "Yeah, I want, I want to, you know, get my spear work better." And so they would work on spear. Oh, yes, uh, Galeazzo, try this. Yes, sir, that was excellent. Now hit me in the face harder or whatever, right? <laughs> so, so, like for my beginners, I get them started by asking questions and suggesting things they would like to do next in class. Um, but also the book is, if we're doing Fiore, the, the Fiore Battaglia is open on the lectern. If we're doing Capoferro, then Capoferro's Grand Sibilacra is open on, on there. And they're encouraged to go and check the book, right? Mm. And I tell them, that sometimes we'll do it exactly like the book. Sometimes we'll do it a bit differently. And if we do it a bit differently, it's either for a good reason, which I can explain if you ask, if I haven't explained it already, or I've made a mistake, right? And if you catch me in a mistake, I will do the push-ups, right? <laughs> right? I was all ready to come to your class till you mentioned push-ups. <laughs> well, yeah, you don't have to do push-ups. I mean, okay. If, if, I'm really if, I'd love to come to your class. If, if I if I was Salvatore Fabris, that would make you the king of Denmark. You know, you come to my class and do what you want. Um, no, but I think you're right, and I think it's really great to hear that if you our if you want to just be the king of your castle, you're not going to learn very much, and you're not going to attract people. Whereas, yes, we can learn just as much from our students by inviting a space for inquiry, right? Um, I think that's, I think that's, I, I think it, and I think it does, it's, t- it, I certainly when I first started teaching, I couldn't do that because I was 
terrified right. of what anyone was going to ask me but yeah, now I love it it's like come on like bring some energy in the space right well, it but, makes you think isn't it you have to go yeah. oh hmm. do I know that hmm. maybe yeah. I don't and um, <laughs> yeah. you know, te- teaching joint locks to a doctor is different right. to teaching joint locks yeah. to yeah. someone who, who you know who doesn't know the difference between a ligament and the tendon it's like no you know, with the, the doctor can sometimes actually, ex- or someone with like anatomical knowledge or, or a masseur or a physiotherapist or whatever, mm-hmm. they'll go, ah, okay, you're engaging this, this, and this. And they'll like tell you exactly which ligaments and tendons and stuff are doing what. And it's brilliant. It's like, <laughs> so if you can get them to come come with their own areas of expertise, it, it, yeah. it speeds up their learning because it's related to stuff they already know. And it, it definitely you know, does. pushes me ahead. It's great. Reminds me a, a lot of... Um, when Ruth and I seem to enter martial arts classes together or historical martial arts classes together, we're often, um, cause we, we, we tend to like, we're putting a lock and we'll go, Ow! and then we'll start laughing or the other one will laugh at the other one, you know, and they'll be like, Ruth will go, Oh, do you think you could just come and help me? I can't quite seem to get that lock on. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> the amount of times where I'm like looking at her going, no, no. Ah, and I've got like a Carly stick in my, or something (laughs) I find it all very yeah people seem to enjoy us laughing at each other and just want to hurt us more (laughs) (laughs) I think we help their learning I'm not sure it helps ours (laughs) yeah and I I have noticed that you can usually tell an actor in class because they try and sell the technique like like when a joint lock goes on they, they sort of like demonstrate the pain and it's like no no no, no. yeah you have to get rid of that because 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 they're you know they need we to don't be, want to show the pain right 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 and you need to be thinking about countering it so if you just if you go with it too easily you won't be able to do the counter <laughs> right you have to be like a, take bringing the getting the forces into your body rooting them down into the ground and basically making life hard for your opponent if you just you know which is definitely what most of the people who are putting these locks on us are doing. And they're like looking at us with their very serious faces. <laughs> We're waiting for the counter, which is generally a, like a massive slap of the floor or, or something. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Can't wait, Ruth, to get back in the room and do all that again. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I think we best wrap it up there. So thank you both very much for joining me. It's been a delight talking to you, getting to know you a bit. Very nice to meet you. Thank you. Very nice to meet you. And um, are your classes running now? Um, I I don't have a school in Britain. My school, I found a school in Finland and it's it's all over the place now. Um, But when I moved to Britain five years ago, I didn't start a branch here because I sort of have enough branches elsewhere to handle. Um, yeah and but I'm I'm teaching regularly over zoom and I basically teach wherever I'm invited to go but I'm not actually running my own classes here at the moment because you know I have other things to do you've got too much on you've got a you've got a podcast to (laughs) deliver and edit (laughs) yeah you know that started out as a lockdown project and it's it's going to carry on anyway yeah it's great because um, it seems, seems really to be good. yeah it's, it seems to be reviews 
Yeah, well, there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, listeners listening in. Yes, feel free to add to those five-star reviews, please. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> subscribe. Press the subscribe button here. There we go. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> Bruce. Super. All right. Thanks, All right. guys. Thank you so much, Guy. Have a good day. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with RC Annie, otherwise known as Ruth and Rachel. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. And especially at the moment, my patrons are doing a splendid job of suggesting future guests. So one of the things that you can do as a patron is ask me to get in touch with people you want to hear from. And I will do that as long as there's some reasonable connection to the topic. And of course, patrons can also suggest questions for future guests. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and all sorts of other perks at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Join us next week for something a little bit different. What happened was Cornelius Bertolt, who has been producing some YouTube videos about the specifics of fencing tempo, contacted me with a question about Capoeira's uses of the term. And I thought rather than emailing back and forth and getting into discussions via that very inefficient medium, it would make a lot more sense for us to jump on a call together and just chat about it. So he could ask whatever questions he wanted. And when I had an answer, he could maybe say, ah, well, actually, what about this? And we could just actually have a conversation about it. And then I thought, well, if I'm having a conversation with an expert but on historical fencing, I might as well record it for you guys. And with Cornelius's permission, that's exactly what I did. So it's not an interview per se. It's I meet Cornelius for the first time and we're doing it over the internet and he has a question about tempo and we start discussing tempo and it gets into some very, very nerdy territory. So I think it was is one for the specialists, those of you who are really into the historical fencing side of historical martial arts. But nonetheless, I think it's a very useful and interesting interview. Well, conversation. <laughs> Can't recall it an interview. And actually, the... When I set up the podcast, my intention was always to have it more like we've been to a seminar or something and we're sitting in the pub afterwards and we're chatting rather than it being some kind of formal and formally structured conversation. So this this conversation with Cornelius actually mirrors many conversations that I've had in the pub with various students and instructors and what have you over the years. So it is actually thoroughly on brand. So I hope you'll enjoy it. We certainly did. If you don't want to miss that, you need to subscribe to the show and you can do that wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, if you could rate it and even leave a review, that would be marvellous. And of course, if there's anyone you think would particularly enjoy this particular episode, please do send them a direct link for it. Absolutely nothing beats a personal and personalised recommendation. So thank you very much for listening and I will see you next week. Thank you.